Hello and welcome to The Small Podcast. In this brand new series, we'll be talking to the people who've navigated the challenges of private equity and private equity-backed companies and built successful careers. Over the course of the weeks, we'll be talking to a diverse group of guests and taking on some of the biggest topics in the private equity and scale-up world. I'm Jonathan Evans, Marketing Manager for The Small Consultancy. Before moving into marketing, I worked in recruitment for 10 years, both in-house for people like Vodafone and Honda, but also agency side, placing interims into large turnaround projects for private equity mergers and acquisitions. My co-host is Caroline Hall, Managing Director and Lead Consultant for The Small Consultancy. Caroline, before I introduce the first episode of this series, please can you give a quick introduction to The Small Consultancy and what we do? The Small Consultancy is over four and a half years old now, and we are specialists within the private equity startup scale-up sector. We've worked extensively with carve-outs and creating the whole recruitment function from scratch. We are passionate about what we do and ensure that quality is at the heart of our work. If your scale-up is about to blow up, then do get in touch. Thanks, Caroline. Our first guest this series is Doran Marks. Doran began his career in the military working with weapons and ammunition before embarking on a career within recruitment. Over the past 15 years, he's worked agency for household names like Michael Page before moving into aerospace and defence as a senior consultant at Corn Ferry. And he spent the last few years focused on private equity backed scale-ups and carve-outs, often engaged by PE companies such as Montague to help them grow their investments. We hope you enjoy the first interview with Doran and please remember to subscribe to the small podcast to be the first to hear each new episode. Welcome, Doran. Hi. Hi, John. Hi, Caroline. Thank you for having me. Doran, we'd like to start just by getting you to give a quick introduction about yourself, really, and, and kind of how you got into the world of recruitment and what you're doing now. Well, um, I guess, I guess uh, like most people, I think we all just fell into recruitment. So maybe we, I don't think anyone really plans, starts their career and goes, oh, I really want to go into recruitment. That'll be good. Um, certainly my parents didn't recommend it. Um, but I, I started in recruitment, uh, as you just said, about 15 years ago. Um, for my sins, I'd been an estate agent for the first year of my career, uh, doing residential lettings in uh, in Marylebone in northwest London, and um, was encouraged by a friend of mine who had joined the uh, the Michael Page graduate scheme at the time to say, you know, very similar property and applicant to job and candidate. You marry the two together and it and it works. And I thought, well, can't be doing this. You know, I'm having a lot of fun what I'm doing. And um thought, but why not go along for an interview? And I saw the bright blue lights of, of Michael Page. And um there we were. And that was that was 15 years ago, just before the world changed. It started there in um March 2008. And all we knew at the time was if you wanted to, you know, to to do well, you had to you had to uh, really work hard and the days were starting to shift from, you know, the phone just rang because you were Michael Page to you really need to start working hard. And obviously, six months later, the world changed in terms of Lehman Brothers and the collapse of the uh, of the financial the financial crisis of 2008. Um, and it went from being five and a half thousand of us globally to uh, three thousand seven hundred within about six months. It was dog eat dog. So. You'd have wake up one morning and the person that you sit next to you was an empty desk. The person that you sat opposite, opposite you was an empty desk. Um, and it was, you know, get your head down. And that, that was really my training school within recruitment for the best part of three years. Um, then I went on to continue in finance recruitment for a little bit longer. 
um, before realizing that, to be honest, I wasn't very good at filling jobs. But what I was good at was the relationship side, was going to clients and getting jobs on. But I always used to have the bridesmaids candidate, um, as they say. And um, I took some advice as to what I should do. Um, and somebody said to me, well, if you're good at going out to win work, you should get into executive search because then you'll get paid up front for, for winning work. Um, and if you go to a really good search firm, they'll also teach you how to research properly and how to recruit properly. So you'll you know, kill two birds with one stone. And I thought, well, that's, that sounds like a great idea. So I went along to interview with a number of firms. And um, uh, one of them said to me, well, what is it that you want to do? And I said, well, actually, I, I used to be in the military. Um, I love aviation. I love aerospace. I'd love to, uh, I'd love to get involved in aerospace and defense. And they said, well, that sits within our industrial desk. Um, go together, go away, put together a business plan. If we like it, we'll go with it. And went, went off, did put together a business plan. And uh, um, successfully, they said to me, well, you know, this could be great. But to be honest, we've got no clients, we've got no candidates. So if it works, it's your success. If it fails, it's your failure. Um, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to, you know, let's go with it. And uh, spent three and a half years uh, building up a, a desk within aerospace and defense within uh, um, a mid-sized um, executive search company. Uh, then got approached by by Corn Ferry to go and replicate the same thing for their future step business across EMEA. Um, and did that for two years before um, getting the bug to um, move in-house um, and uh, stop chasing the buck, as it were, and be a bit more of a partner with the business as opposed to, uh, I guess, just uh, not never being as good as your last quarter. Um, and then went and uh, ran a, uh, a global TA function or set up and ran a global TA function for a, a fintech business. Um, and my role there after a couple of years was made redundant. They relocated it back to South Africa. And it was at that point when I took a little bit of time out um, and was all of a sudden approached by a, a business, a defense business, um, on an interim basis to go in and set up ATA function. And I stopped them very quickly and said, no, no, I'm not a, I'm not an interim candidate. I, you know, I need a permanent job. I've got responsibilities. Um, no, go and have a chat with them. And uh, there I was. I went into this business that had just been acquired by a private equity company and needed somebody to go and carve out a TA function. There had been somebody in the role for a, uh, a short period of time that hadn't been so successful in, in starting off that piece of work. Didn't quite work out. Um, and uh, I thought, well, what have we got to lose here? Um, and here we are, what, three and a half years later now. Um, I wouldn't call myself a private equity expert, but uh, yeah. having now done four PE carve-outs and uh, one PE rebuild, um, it's kind of turned into a bit of a bit of a journey um, and a very, very enjoyable one um, at that. So, um, yeah, there we are. So I know that was a bit of a long-winded answer, um, <laughs> but... Uh, there we are. No, so you actually took quite a few risks then in your career because a lot of recruiters, obviously, as you said, you started in finance. Most, as you said, most people fall into recruitment. They don't pick what sector they want to go into. They go into what's available and then they stay in finance for 20 years um, or more like six years uh, until they leave. So in that transition, and obviously you got to pick for yourself which area you went into, which was quite good. But I mean... There's quite a lot that must have changed within just general recruitment over that time. You mentioned, obviously, you, know, you went to the recession in 2008. What are some of the biggest things that you've seen change over that time? Well, in 2008, it was certainly no LinkedIn, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> we used to have, so I started, when I started in recruitment, um, I started doing interim, uh, part-qualified 
lawyers into professional services, so paralegals. And um, we used to get a call from a law firm on a Monday morning to say, we need three paralegals in for this week. They must start tomorrow. No interviews. You just you have to send us three people that will be at reception at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. And we had a big whiteboard on the wall and we had a list of immediately available temps. And there must have been how many there were at the time. And you'd phone them up and it'd be the first three that would be available. Yep. Can you be at this firm tomorrow morning? Mm. Yep. Great. And you send them you send them the list and they'd be there at 9 a.m. the next morning. And you never quite knew how long they'd how long they'd be there for, whether it would be a day, whether they were just going through cases or whether they were going to be carrying um, you know, files over to court if they were doing litigation stuff. Um and when you didn't have jobs on, you used to be constantly refreshing your list and phoning these candidates. Have you found a job yet? Have you found a job yet? Because if you if you got to lunchtime and you hadn't found those three candidates that the client had asked for, they'd be going elsewhere. And it was all done either off a you know, either off a list or a black book or off a database. There's no such thing as LinkedIn. So if you headhunted, you you were doing proper headhunting via company websites and phoning up switchboards. Um and I kind of laugh about it today that people have, you know don't like thinking about myself as too old. Look at the younger generation now who are kind of starting in recruitment or been in recruitment for, I don't know, let's say, you know, five, 10 years. All they know is LinkedIn. Mm. Um, and, and that has changed the the industry enormously. Um, and I recall for the first couple of years that LinkedIn became a, a thing. When I used to go and have to sell um, search to uh, to clients when I was in executive search, the perception was that all we did was went through LinkedIn because mm. at the time, oh, why would we pay you? All you're doing is going through LinkedIn and just doing a keyword search. Um, so the industry has changed enormously over the last fifty over the last fifteen years. I'm sure people that have been in it even prior to when I joined would say that would say that there have been even more drastic changes. But I'd say that the 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 the, the social media or professional media um, has been such a such a such a change in the industry, and just the fact that you can now connect dots to people within either your mm. sector or an adjacent sector so so rapidly and so instantly um, is, I think, good, but also quite scary because there's almost nowhere to hide. If somebody wants to find you, they will find you. Um, so whether it's a candidate that, you know, you've, you might have rejected for a job, they will find you. Um, or whether it's a client that you're trying to get in front of, you can find them. Um, and I know that the statistics are still that not everybody uses the likes of LinkedIn, but it is obviously becoming more and more prevalent as, as you know, it's almost like, like Facebook now, um, hmm. or like Facebook was, but it's scary. I mean, you touched there that obviously the industry has changed a lot, uh, but you mentioned, you know, how recruiters are perceived, I guess, and how executive search in particular is, is sort of was perceived as just searching LinkedIn. I mean, for a lot of people, it's still viewed that way in, in, in a lot of areas. Um, I mean, how have you seen the perception change? Because I think being in recruitment, we saw it change very rapidly, you know, over the last 10 years, whereas perception may be in the marketplace still isn't what recruitment actually is at the moment. And I think that's probably where a lot of us have spent the last few years pushing is trying to build up actually no this is a strategic recruitment function this is what good looks like yeah and that's and that's really interesting so to give an example going back to to the michael page days back then when people left the agency side and moved in-house people back then were seen as failed recruiters if they mm. moved in-house mm. um 
it was almost like, oh, you can't hack the agency yeah. uh, life. You, you know, you, you can't bill or you can't build relationships with clients. Um, and back then there was a stigma that in-house recruitment was where you was where you went to have an easy life or to be in a, be in a world where there's no pressure, there's no stress. Um, and it has become, and, and then from that, you kind of had the RPO days where you had people that were just going in to be, you know, processing, I guess, professionals within within large corporates or banks, financial services institutions are probably the early adapters of, of RPOs. Um, and even RPOs have become a lot more professional now in terms of the type of people that they hire, the quality of work that they engage in. Um, and I think it's only really been over the last, I'd love to say it's since I've been in, in-house, but maybe a little bit before that, two, three years before that. So maybe the last seven or eight years where in-house recruiters and in-house recruitment functions are seen as more than just agency recruiters that have gone in-house yeah. it is much more of a partnership it is much more of a um of a career um and it is seen much more as an extension and part of a business as opposed to just all oh, these are some recruiters that work for us and i'm sure we'll come on to you know the differences between agency and in-house and, and, and so on and so forth but i think that the the perception of in-house recruiters has become um far better over the last decade um and i think if you were if you were if you were talking about becoming an in-house recruiter back in the day it was almost a well, why do you want to do that whereas mm-hmm. now i actually think that recruiters if given the choice at the beginning of their career would go in-house over going into mm-hmm. an agency yeah, right. it's gone that far. we're brand ambassadors as an in-house aren't you you're an extension of the, of the company yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and i think in in this day and age if you're a candidate you would far you well i think in any, in any era but i think more so now if you're phoning from a business and you're representing that business i think it's going to go further with a candidate than if you're phoning from an agency and giving not secondhand information as such but you're not calling from that business they're never able to answer questions in the same way that a business are and are they do they have your best interests at heart when they're speaking to you or are they just representative because your cv look, might look strong for a certain position and they're trying to work on a you know on a on a success basis yeah. right um and i found that massive when 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 i moved in house and i was phoning and i was approaching candidates even on linkedin when i was headhunting candidates for the first time and they said oh the business oh i've never heard of that agent no no, no we're not an agency I am the business and we're looking to recruit you for a position within our company. And it was always back then, it was quite novel. Yeah, um, it's true. I never get asked <laughs> that now. Great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I never get asked that now. And, and people can generally say, what's it like to work there? And you can generally Ooh. answer that question where, you know, as you said, it's more secondhand if you're an agency. Uh, agency. Yeah, I mean, to give you an example of when, I worked at Honda and I think Caroline have told you this story before. I mean, obviously everybody at Honda has this one level kind of management structure. So from the, everyone on the factory floor, right up to the manager director wears the same uniform, which is the white green cap. And you can kind of tell somebody this as a external recruit and go, oh yeah, you know, they all wear the same uniform. But then when you're kind of living that, you can't in the practicalities of well everybody's sat at the same table at lunchtime everyone has their same lunch break you know 
it's like a bit like school. The bell goes off and everyone toddles off for 20 minutes and then sort of comes back. But, you know, you could talk to somebody for half an hour and you'd be like, oh, that was nice. And then someone goes, oh, yeah, that was the manager director. And, you know, that does happen because <laughs> quite a lot, you know, because they'd be walking around. And it did have a real world impact on the entire culture from the top down, which you don't see unless you're in that organization, I think is 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 the way. But I think there's two big things, well, certainly in my mind, that kind of contributed to this. One is when recruitment stopped being recruitment and became talent acquisition, semantics, but it moved out of HR generally. And I think that kind of positioned it in a place where the reporting lines were different and it could make a more strategic case for itself because there wasn't no, it goes through HR, you get jobs from HR, and it did become a strategic function. Um, on the other side, it's just the growth in tech in the past 10 years, and tech companies all had glamorous in-house positions earning £100,000 a year. <laughs> you know, so I think that has kind of popularized, at least amongst recruiters, as a, as you said, it's no longer that failed recruiter I'm going in-house. It is a viable, this is a shiny career, you know, in yeah. you know with good prospects that, is a viable path. Yeah, no, totally agree. Very interesting. So we'll move on from the sort of general recruitment side and look a bit more, Darren, about how you got into the PE side. So you mentioned, obviously, that you were permanent when you kind of originally started in that world, so it wasn't really on your radar. So what was it that kind of swung you, I guess, into into, into working with them? Um, I think you touched on it a little bit before, uh, Jonathan. I, I, I like taking risks um, to a certain degree. Um, professionally, I've always been somebody that likes to better themselves and try and better businesses at mm. the same time within, obviously, my sphere. And it, in a weird way, the appeal to doing that first carve-out was knowing that somebody else had been in there before and hadn't quite managed to make it work. Um, and obviously I didn't know the reasons why, um, because I was, you know, I was, I was not employed by the business at the time. Um, and I kind of, that kind of spurred me on more because there was nothing there to go in and be able to a fix the stuff that hadn't quite worked before. So it wasn't just a ground zero. It was a, this is beneath ground zero. There are stakeholders that need appeasing and relationships that need building back to where they should be first. And then, oh, there's a whole TA function that we need to build. You know, there is nothing. It is a greenfield. Come in and build everything. Um, and I thought, well, you know what? This is a great challenge. Why not? And if this works, and I took some advice and people said to me, well, you know what? If you can get into the PE space, there's a real gap in the market here and you can become a go-to PE person when it comes to carve outs or build outs whatever it is and I thought you know what let's go for it it's a risk um there was other opportunities I was looking at at the time that were more permanent and were more business as usual shall we say um but this excited me this challenged me um I was really brought in by the leadership um of of the of the portco um the CEO was fantastic the interim CHRO was great um, I interviewed with a couple of the SLT. They were just people that I thought, I really want to work with these people. I bought into the business and I loved what the business did. Um, and I thought, let's go for it. Um, and then two weeks after joining, we went into lockdown um, and the world changed. Um, so it was it was a start of, I, saw, I think I saw the office twice. I was in the office for two days. Um, 
I'm sure we'll come on to this, but I then hired Caroline remotely. Um, and then Caroline. Yeah, I met Caroline twice, I think, in that whole year. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we interviewed We interviewed together in the office. Mm. I then went away for a week. And mm. by the time I'd come back, we were in lockdown. And mm. I'll never forget it because I came into the, I, I, I landed back into the office, I landed back into the country on a, on a Monday morning. Nobody was in the office anymore because we were about to go into lockdown. And I remember phoning the interim chief people officer and saying, I need to get my laptop. My laptop's still in the office. And she said, yeah, it's okay. You can get into the office. And we've kept a key for the office under this plant pot. And if you go in there, your laptop's in a drawer, but you can't stay in the office because we're all in lockdown now. So I remember like sneaking into the office, taking my laptop, going home and never came back again for about six months. It was the most bizarre time ever. But yeah, like like, like other things, just kind of fell into it. It was a challenge that got me there um, and the opportunity to build something. Um and yeah, that, that that was it. It was kind of haven't looked back since, I guess. Um, it was a great experience. They were amazing yeah. how they embraced it from a very work, you know, be present model. That was the CEO's kind of mantra, no working from home at all, to really embracing the working from home and how they communicated on a weekly basis. And it was a challenge, wasn't it, of the whole recruitment of, of there was suddenly they had investment. And we were recruiting all around the world, weren't we? We were gutted. We couldn't go to India. We could have gone to India, Middle East, and America. <laughs> the options were available to us. It was it was the most bizarre time. I remember I pre-COVID, I used to travel 52 weeks a year. Um in the in the in the um in the in-house role that I had before. Um for the best part of two years, I was basically living out of a suitcase um china india west coast and east coast of the us europe middle east i used to go and set up offices for the business but i was mainly going and interviewing people so i'd be you know i'd be flying to shanghai on a monday morning interviewing 14 people there taking a flight to shenzhen doing two more days of interviewing there and then i'd come home and that would be it that's because i was used to that from search even when i was in search i was running searches around the world i used to go and interview candidates for the day go in you know fly to germany interview six candidates come home always face to face and then all of a sudden it was like you can't meet anyone anymore yeah and that whole kind of first 30 seconds you know you, you interview somebody and you know caroline we've been doing this for long enough now you interview somebody you kind of know within the first 30 seconds to a minute whether you're going to hire them or not yep. from the handshake from the way they walk into a room from the way they present themselves to the eye contact that they have with you you know whether you're going to hire somebody or not i remember when i interviewed caroline i knew within a minute i was going to hire when what, i was going to hire caroline i'd interviewed somebody before they'd gone out caroline came in and I, you know, we walked out. We, we had the interview and came out. And my my boss, the interim chief officer, said, "What do you think?" I said, "I'm hiring her." She goes, "What do you mean? How do you know that quickly?" I said, "I've interviewed enough people over the last however many years to know." And then you go from that to this whole environment that we've just lived in now for the last what, three years, where face to face interviewing just goes out the window, and you have to learn um, to pick up prompts of what a good video interview is like um and because we've all had some horror stories over the last few years of interviewing people over teams or 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 zoom or whatever it is and you know the no-nos of videos and no videos and you just kind of learn very quickly um but i'm now in 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 a state in this current um role that i'm doing whereby i'm trying to coach the slt and the hiring managers about actually getting back to face to face interviewing 
Mm. Um, and that's challenging because we call it lazy, but people have got used to sitting in front of their computer screens and having meetings and interviewing. Um, and Caroline, you'll remember this. We were really fearful when we were working together that on the first role that we did together, that we were going to see a high level of attrition once people got back to offices mm. because we hired Caroline, what did we hire? 90, a hundred people in that first year together. Yeah. Around the world. So yeah, we built sales functions in the U S we, we grew the business here in the UK. We were doing a lot of hiring in India, mm. all of it remotely. And I was really concerned that when we came out of lockdown and people got back into the offices that, you know, culturally, some of them might not be right. Mm -hmm. Would the location be right for them in terms of a commute? Um, would they like the rest of their team that they haven't yet met? Um, and it was a huge shift there. And now that shift's going back to, right, guys, we're now back in, we're now back in an office. You know, you're in an office two, three, four days a week sometimes. Do you not want to take that extra bit of time to make sure that the person that you're going to offer a job to, you've not met them face to face and they shake their hand and, you know, have a coffee with them. Um, and it's now trying to change those behaviours back to how we were mm. pre-2020, which mm. is fascinating. Um, and you've even got younger yeah. people now in the market, that it, people that came into, into, the, into working during COVID mm. that have never had the face-to-face -face interview. Crazy. It's a very good point. We always... I always try and instill that the, you know, the last round is a face-to-face -face interview. And it yeah. can speed up the process because then they have to take time off. They can just spend an hour at a lunch break or something doing that call online. But that last stage should be face-to-face -face. because they need to see the office, the commute, all those bits and pieces you said. But, yeah, it's that learning behaviour. It's funny, isn't it? Interesting. Mm. It is. And it's interesting that you are now doing the reverse and the reverse of what Raghu is doing with hiring managers. Um, yeah, you'd have to coach them on, on return to the office. But um, I mean, how much has kind of that life returned within the kind of PE space? Have people just kind of gone back to what it was like before people returning five days or is it more that kind of blended two days, two days a week, rest work from home? I think it really depends on the business. Um, in the last the, the last role that I was working in, um, was so the PE um, brought in a new CEO and CFO very quickly, um, and they are they were very rigid in terms of they wanted people back five days a week into the office. Um, the business that I'm currently in, it's more of a a flexible approach, so it's it's more of a hybrid working model. Um, and so so yes it's come back but equally i don't think it's hard to project what will happen in, in in 10 20 years time but i i think even now when businesses are looking so for example um this business is now looking at a new premises now that they've separated um and they're almost taking an office space that will never be enough to have everybody in five days mm -hmm. a week and they don't want that and there will be some functions that will remain remote um so i think whilst businesses do want people back in the office some of them are looking at a grown-up approach 
others are looking at more you will be here because this is what it was like um but i think it's also playing on the candidate's mind now in terms of if they're approached with two roles one of them has a flexible working environment one of them has an environment that is five days a week back in the office hmm. it almost comes into it as much as it did as as, as, as money did and this it's, is more challenging right yeah no it is challenging i mean um, this is something that we like to talk about a lot, Carolyn, as a small consultancy, is that, you know, flexibility for us is more than just how long you're in the office. And I think one of the good things about lockdown was it did kind of allow it to amount people who had traditionally not been able to enter the workforce to enter the workforce. So you have a lot of people at one end leaving the workforce because of COVID and, you know, coming out the other end and going, oh, I quite enjoy this. I'm going to take early retirement. Um, you have people who have found that, you know, employers are more open to potentially more flexible working hours, for example, than you would in a traditional office environment where you have to be nine to five at your desk. And this is more kind of a general question to both of you. I don't expect you to give examples from places you work. But I mean, have you kind of seen examples in the Rakuma world really where you do think that is reflected and people are continuing that? So I think it has Im it's definitely improved. Um, I, I laugh. I laugh at the moment because we, we have certain people that will log on to calls and they'll be quite open in saying, "You know, I'm just doing this at the moment. I've just dropped my, you know, my my daughter off here, or I'm just on the way to this, and it will almost be accepted. Oh, okay, that's fine. You know, you're on the call, kind of, because everyone's working remotely. Whereas I recall pre-COVID, if you know, if you needed to if you needed to go to the doctor or you had an appointment somewhere, you'd take a half day off and you, you know, yeah. it was almost like, Oh, what are you doing? You're not in the office. I'm going to have to take a half day. But if you needed to go to the doctor or the dentist, you'd either do it first thing in the morning or last thing at night. Whereas now I think it's almost normal that it's okay to have an appointment during the day mm. because it's almost expected that you'll work. You'll make up mm. that time. Um, but not because you're on the clock, but I also think it's now become the norm where people switch off later and, and, and less, you know, if you're in the office, you left the office at whatever time it was. That was it. You closed your you closed your laptop. Your computer went off, and that was it until the next morning. Whereas I think now, but you'll constantly get stuff over the weekend or in an evening, and you're almost like, should I be replying to that now? Mm. Yes, there's no sort of stop. I think. Yeah. Talking to people and obviously working in, we, we, you know, since when we first worked together, we've worked in numerous businesses. I've never had a complaint about productivity with any of the teams or, you no. know, or employees or whatever. I think people have just really embraced it. The companies that do embrace it and have set up that function properly, that so there is good communication, etc. <clears throat> I haven't seen an issue at all. Hmm. I don't think anyone's had... Um, or had to revise that the setup or the the kind of process um, because of that at all. And I think I think it's such a, a benefit now to people, like you said. And um, it's not just that like it's mental health. Or I can go to the gym at lunchtime because I need yeah. that. That really gets me healthy. I can go for a walk. I can take the dog out. You know, I can really just come away from my desk. And I think people do more hours. The amount of people I speak to who work from home start at seven, eight o'clock in the morning and finish at six in the afternoon, you know. And, and as you said, don't switch off. It's like, oh, I'll just quickly do this, you know. Yeah. So 
uh, yeah, that's definitely my perception. I'm sure it sounds like Dora's the same. Yeah, and no, I think you're right. And it, it does become that balancing, isn't it? It's better for mental health in one regards, but then burnout in the other regard when you can't switch off is a big issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to the, the P side of things, then, if you were someone to approach you and ask you what is the best way to get into P then as a recruiter within that space, what would be the best advice you give them? It's a real chicken and egg. Right. Um, I remember back in the day when 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 in-house recruitment started to be, become perceived as moving house because of the proper career change. It used to be. How do I get into how do I get in-house? And the answer was, well, you need to have in-house experience. Um, <laughs> do you remember? Yeah. It used to be like, yeah. And all the job yeah. descriptions that you used to read were looking for in-house experience. But I'm a really good agency recruiter. How do I get in-house? It was almost like that, 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 you know, that catch 22. You have and and that was the same with 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 PE almost. Um, and I get people now that approach me and go, "How did you get into PE? You know, your background and experience is so desirable. Everybody would love to do what you do." And I'm like, "Well, first of all, it's you know, it, it's just it's just a, you know, it's just a job. Let's not you know sugarcoat it. It's still recruitment, and it, you know, it might be in the PE, but it's still it's still talent acquisition." Um, but I think that the best way to get in is is almost by won't say falling into it but but almost just getting into one of the port codes and and into in in a, in a kind of business as usual mode now obviously the the change and the building and the carve out stuff happens within the first six to 12 months sometimes 18 months but after that usually um there will be an element obviously of business as usual for the next mm -hmm. few years before that cycle then churns um, and that is often when it is a good time to get in because you still get exposure to the PE, mm -hmm. um, you're working in the port co, um, and it's still you're still going to be working at that fast pace. Um, mm -hmm. And Caroline and I have seen this a couple of times when we've been working together. That often, when when we're looking to exit and and move into business as usual mode, we will then hire a permanent uh, talent acquisition team. And I'd say that's a good time to get in because you still get part of the chaos and the fun of the the carve outs and the TSA exits and and whatever else. But you then also get to see the good of what's been built and then get to continue that. So I'd say for anyone getting in, that is a good time to get in. Um, if you don't want to be part of the chaos and be accountable for standing up a function, um, having to hire a load of people within a short space of time, having to build an ATS and put in an ATS, um, having to um, you know, answer to shareholders um, very early on while everyone's still in chaotic mode moving in once it moves into slight BAU mode, I think would be advantageous. Um, and then once you've kind of got the, the P label on the CV, um, that makes a massive difference. And I know that when we're hiring now, um, you know, for standalone roles within an organization, that kind of P experience is super advantageous. If you kind of worked with PE, um, you know, it's not the be all and end all, but it really helps. Um, so that would be my advice, and it's easier said than done. Um, but I guess I was just lucky to fall into it at the time when I did, um, and been really lucky to be surrounded and supported by really great people that ultimately have made me look good during that time, or hopefully look good. I mean, if it didn't, you know, you said there is an opportunity after that chaotic period, and it's kind of moving into that BAU. Are there any particular skills? outside of the normal skills you'd look for in a recruiter when you do that hiring 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's attitude. Um, it's yeah, mindset. It's bonkers. It's chaotic. Don't think you're going to walk into a lovely all set up. It's all going to be beautiful. You know, you've got everything. The database is running smoothly. You know, it's it's yeah, that it's that mindset yeah absolutely having that proactive mentality is so important um and i'll take it a step further as well typically when you're moving into one of these uh recently acquired pp businesses the stakeholders within that business so for example whether it's the slt senior leadership team or the smt they are more often than not trying to prove themselves to the pe as well mm. so Anyone, anyone that's obviously in those roles is 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 under a microscope because if they're not going to perform, the PE are going to go. Well, is this the person we want leading this function down the line? So they're fighting for their lives or fighting to look good within their own within their own little world, and that pressure then in turn comes on you because they're you know they're then saying, well, you know, this needs to happen within this date and that date and that date and this. You know, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? And you always need to think that that you know they're they're looking to impress upon themselves to to you know to the PE um, and even the CEO right the CEO of a recently acquired business is is gonna is ultimately where the buck stops because you know if they're not if they're not performing and if they're not doing what 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 the PE has you know set out that this business is going to achieve within a certain time frame then they're going to be held accountable so mm. it's it's not just you're going into a business whereby everything's ticking along as Caroline said, and everything's normal. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very secure and very stable management team. Um, in the last three carve outs that I've done, uh, I'd say actually maybe all four, um, they've been business units that have been acquired, uh, business units that have been taken out of much larger organizations. And the leadership team have gone from being, a management team of a business unit to all of a sudden becoming a leadership team within a standalone organization so they're learning at the same time as well so it's not just talent acquisition it's also they've been used to being surrounded often by a much larger team and a much larger function so um stuff like interview training for example that they're not used to um having to put having to be really proactive and 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 and, and run a function by themselves and be accountable for the recruitment that they do within their own teams. Um, it's 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 so much more, as you said, Caroline, about being proactive, being hands on, and actually partnering with that with those people. Um, and in a lot of instances as well, it's about doing a lot by yourself. And you go back to being a three sixty recruiter whilst managing a team, whilst trying to put in an applicant tracking system or whatever other processes and systems that you're putting in at the same time whilst coaching an slt um whereas in another business you can afford to focus on one or another or another um this is almost everything at once yeah. and with that i mean this is a question to both of you i guess how how do you prepare for that because i mean you know often as well you're dealing with volume, you, know, <laughs> you know you're having to recruit entire teams you know not, not just bringing in one critical higher year or there so I mean, you guys yourself, you know, going to be a risk of burnout. So what do you do to kind of prepare yourself for those challenges? Good question. And Tom is laughing. 
Sweat. And Darren, you're on your fourth one now, so you kind of know what works and doesn't, but yeah. you have to be able to absorb a huge amount of pressure. This is another layer, like you're saying, SLT. They've suddenly got investors, which they've not had to deal with before, and people want return on that investment. And very quickly. So it's you've got to, and talent is always a bit of a a bit of a highlight, isn't it? There's always a bit of a spotlight, not a highlight, sorry, spotlight. So I think it's it's been able to juggle a lot and you know, data reporting, even if that's from an Excel spreadsheet, you've got to be able to know what you're doing. So it's juggling a lot. And I know talent yeah. is not generally, but it's it's double, triple that. Yeah, I, I agree. I'd say just to just to add to that, I think two things that have been really important for me, um, as you said, learning on the job um, mm-hmm. and learning from 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 carve out to carve out um, mm-hmm. is really important. Um, I wrote. Uh, I was asked by um, by the PE firm that I've done work for to write a, a white paper um, after mm-hmm. the uh, second carve out that I did for them. Um, on the differences between the first carve out and the second carve out that we did, um, and both of them were with Caroline, um, and um, just the differences between one and two, and now three and four and five, um, you learn what works and what doesn't work really quickly. So I remember the, the, the in the first carve out, it was like, right, can you um, can you um, uh, select and implement a new applicant tracking system? Well, never done this before. Yeah. Um, and you know, you're going in and you're you get sitting through demos and you're kind of wondering what is it that we need to get from this ATS and why would we select this one over another one and when do we do it um and in hindsight again being open we, we implemented the ATS too late on the first one circumstantial but we, so I knew that when we came into the second carve out you start thinking right well in order to get the ATS in at this point we need to start thinking about it now so you start to think about things much quicker um, and you start to know when you need things in by. Um, that's really important. Um, and I think also, and this is a really basic thing, but, you know, you talk about burnout and and, and challenges. I always think it's important to have somebody that you can talk to. Um, mm. And, you know, Caroline and I would spend a significant amount of time on the phone every day. Mm. Um, a lot of the time, I won't say complaining, but a lot of the time... Um, <laughs> downloading shall we say uh in terms of challenges and frustrations that we're having um but a lot of the time we just sit on a call with screens on and just sharing information and go what do you think just having that second pair of eyes and ears to almost rationalize what it is that you're doing or why it is that you're doing it um and although i haven't got caroline now um i have a really great cpo chief people officer that i work with that i've now worked with on three carve outs um and him and i have that relationship where he can phone me about stuff that's HR related and go, I know you don't know about this, but can I just run this by you just to sense check it? And I'll go, yeah, that makes sense. And I'll do the same with him. Um, and I think it's really important when you're in that stressful period where it is just chaos, 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 and you feel like you're working more than you're not working to be able to have someone or people that you're working with to be able to share information and knowledge with. And I think mm-hmm. it works both ways. And that's really important. Um, for example, on, on, on this project, um, there have been times where it's been, what are we doing? Is this what needs to be done? And then you just phone 
you know, phone a friend almost and work out that, yeah, actually it does make sense. And you are still on that same track and or the right path, as it were. Um, but I think that basic having somebody to speak to is is just mm-hmm. critical, mm-hmm. I'd say. I don't know if I would have got through it without Caroline for the first couple of years. I'll be honest. Oh, I'm not so with you, No, I definitely miss it. I'm 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 quite solo uh, at the moment, and I've got I'm working with an amazing HR team at the moment who are just very supportive, which is really nice. But yeah, no, I totally agree. It's just very different when you're that sort of standalone sole function. It's there's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. I mean, if somebody is listening to this and thinking, well you know we're muddling along with spreadsheets we don't have an ATS you know we're, we're, we're trying amongst the higher managers to do the recruitment bit the pieces you know managing some agencies what advice would you give them when engaging a recruiter to find a good in-house recruiter for their P business uh that's a very good question for me it's and when I obviously uh, uh, when I, I meet potential new clients it's very much um, what's needed is that recruiter getting what's needed. Do they have that background and that almost resilience? And what what are they bringing to the table? Because a lot of it's not just finding people; it's the marketing piece, becoming that employer of choice, and how to say to the world, the LinkedIn world, we're recruiting, we're amazing, come and work for us. So it's that piece as well that you've got to you've got to kind of sell in, if that makes sense. So mm. I said before about being a brand ambassador, and I think that's really key is that marketing, um, PR, recruitment part. And does that person get that? That it's not just going, oh, I've got to fill these roles. There's so many more layers to it. And I know in-house could say, yeah, we do the same. These are people who just who could be just starting. They're startups. Mm-hmm. They're just going out into, into the market or they're just starting to hire outside of their network. So it's, it's, it's that and holding their hands. So I'd say really someone who's experienced with that side just as much as someone who's a, who's a you know, proven recruiter. That's me, my bit. I yeah. don't know if you've got anything else to add to that, Darren. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it, it's really interesting. Um, back in the day, as we said, you, used to, you know, certainly when you used to hire in-house recruiters, it used to be a case of they must have had agency and in-house experience. Mm. Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they need to be able to sell. Okay, well, why is that? And now it's a case of, and and actually one of the reasons why I hired Caroline um, was Caroline didn't come from an agency background. Um, but Caroline was a really great brand ambassador and she really, you know, when I asked her about the businesses that she worked for, you know, in-house, she was really passionate. You're really passionate about the companies that you worked for mm. and the relationships that you still had with your candidates mm. years later. And I saw that because we ended up hiring someone, didn't we, into one of the businesses that you'd hired before about years earlier. I can't remember who it was, but it was, it was, it was one of those and you, you were still in touch with that candidate. Mm. Um and I think it's and, and that comes back to that whole kind of brand ambassadorial piece. So, yes, you can be a great recruiter and you can sell, sell, sell. But actually, do you are you can you be an ambassador for the brand that you are recruiting for? And that's massively important because people buy from people. Right. Um, but people also now buy from businesses. And if you're able to represent that business in the best possible light, I think that goes further now than just, you know, 
we're able to pay X amount more than our competitors or, you know, we'll stick 2% more in your pension pot or we'll give you an extra day's annual leave. What is it about that business? You know, whether it's about sustainability, whether it's about growth, whether it's about diversity, you know, all of these things are so important now in the workplace. Um, and actually that first call that you get from that individual, whether that's Caroline, whether that's Joe Bloggs, whoever it is, sets the tone for how the rest of that recruitment process is going to be. Um, and you're absolutely right. I think that comes up more now um, than, you know, can you sell a job to a person? Mm. I think we've stepped away from that now. And I, I think that's really important now is, is the person that is going to be approaching that candidate and having that first interaction with that candidate, can he or she represent your business in the best possible light? And are they going to be a good ambassador for your brand and it's so critical yeah no i, I completely agree and how we ended up in marketing from a recruitment role <laughs> it turns out it's quite a small step sideways uh it's so you've obviously talked about how things have changed and kind of the p work you've done now so kind of just the focus at the end a little bit um what, what do you see kind of happening in the future i mean what are the biggest trends within P, I'm not sure trends is necessarily the white word, but I mean, for example, you can't go on LinkedIn for two seconds without somebody mentioning chat GPT, for example. Um, I mean, is anything like that having an impact within within the P space? Uh, probably for more technically minded people than myself. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, I'd say from a, from a deal perspective, the thing that I've seen over the last few years is that um, uh, funds are becoming the, the the due diligence that is being done into a deal is becoming more and more serious and not to say that the, that the due diligence wasn't strong before that but there seems to be even more research and even more dd done than ever before uh, which i think is important um because you know obviously once you once you acquire a business or, or, or acquire a stake in an organization that's it you know there's no there's no return policy you can't take it back to the shop if you don't like it you're you're bought into that business um and i'm i'm astounded by the pe guys that i work with um i recall one of the first calls i ever went on um in the first carve out that i did um it was with one of the pe guys i didn't know at the time i thought they were i thought they worked for the business because they were so knowledgeable about the organization that they work for that i thought oh this guy must work for them no no he was from the pe and he was so embedded and engrossed into that organization and he knew so much about that business around who did what and the type of products that they did and the tech that they did um it was so important um and i was just so impressed and i think now it's becoming more about when, when an organization is buying an, uh, when a pe is buying an organization what is the go-to-market strategy coming a lot more product focused and a lot of the growth now is around product so product sales marketing are the three key areas that i that i'm seeing that are you know if a business has got room for growth in those areas that becomes a a, a target yeah. uh, acquisition almost has that helped recruitment in a way become more embedded from an earlier stage because if they are looking to do that go to market talent, they're obviously going to need to think about the talent to get there um yes and that's why uh, I tend to get brought in now at an earlier stage than I was before, mm -hmm. um, which is helpful um, because it used to be a case of, oh, there you go. There's a plan. Yeah. Just go and execute it. 
and then all of a sudden you look at the numbers and you know the the the, the numbers that they're looking to achieve are not quite there the salaries that they may be looking to achieve are not you know they're not market related um and getting brought in at an earlier stage is now doran what's your view on x is this achievable within a certain time frame is this the best location to be mm. building this function in um so i think it is becoming more more of a joined up uh process from that perspective um because typically if you're just going to be looking at a big four to be doing your um you know your 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 standalone hiring plan um you're not getting specific or tailored um answers to the questions mm. um so i think absolutely it's becoming more and more uh, of a focus it's easier for us now when we know that we're going to be building the same functions or growing the same functions over and over again that you kind of start to build out what good looks like within those areas um but yeah i, th I think it's it, it, it's massively helped coming in at an earlier stage pre-deal closure to be able to start shaping it so that you know that by the time the deal does close you've got your interims in that are going to start carving out those functions if you need them but you're also going to know what the go-to-market strategy is going to be and what the implications are going to be on the business because you know when you need to get these people in by uh, and yeah i i think that's the situation that a lot of recruiters this will will familiarize itself with and it kind of takes us back full circle really to what we're talking about at the start with recruitment has changed perception of recruitment has not necessarily changed at the same pace but things sometimes force it to change as you just said there you know with the less money i guess is what's causing people to spend more time actually thinking about the deals they're doing and do more diligence on the deals has helped push that perception through and then given the opportunity to prove it, I guess. I think that brings us nicely back to that, back to where we started, really. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so just to leave us with one last question then, Doran, uh, if you were prime minister for the day, what <laughs> would be the thing that you would implement? <laughs> the wow. killer question. Well, seeing as we're going through prime ministers as quickly as we are, um, <laughs> private equity car that's you, at the you might actually and, um, legitimately get a chance. Yeah, I might be up to God, what would I implement? Um, that is a really, really difficult question. Um, I would, I mean, there's many things that I would implement. I think one of them would be that I would introduce a, um, a fair wage for support staff. And I don't just mean NHS staff, but I think um, public sector in general. Um, mm -hmm. I think the last few years has really shown how reliant we are on our public sector and our public services in general. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that they should be paid as much as footballers or as much as actors. Um, I think that's that's obviously a, a real extreme. But one thing I'd really like to see is a, a, a um, and seeing as I'd only be prime minister for a day, I wouldn't need to put out a budget and say where the money needs to come from, right? So I wouldn't need to be held accountable to it. Um, I'd really like to see that, um, that that professionals in those areas are not only not not only remunerated properly, but I'd really like to see that people are also attracted to work in those areas in the future, because I think the damage that's being done now is going to have a generational impact. Um, on people that move that look to move into healthcare or policing or firefighting or teaching, you know, all of those adjacent industries in the future. 
And I'd really like to see a proper reform in those in that world that people actually see it as a career choice, um, not just because they want to look after people, but also because they can then afford to look after their families um, by actually being well rewarded for doing those jobs. I know it's a bit of a bit of a cliche, but I feel really passionate about it. And I think if COVID in the last three years have taught us anything, it's that we've undervalued our support staff massively and they were there for people when nobody else was. So I'd really like to see a massive reform there, um, to be honest with you. Great answer. I like that. That, that was pretty much mine and Caroline's weekly team meeting. In, 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 in some, something about me. <laughs> in one answer there, Darren. <laughs> what? We do. I think we say what we do every day. We do spend a lot of time discussing politics and then we said to the... Yeah. <laughs> I try to keep it as apolitical as possible. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> you, you won't get any disagreement from us on that one. Sorry, no. um, it has been generally a pleasure to speak to you and get your insight on this. Um, and obviously, hopefully, we'll have you on again in the future. Thank you for listening to the small podcast. We'll be back with even more guests discussing their careers in private equity and how they met the challenges of working in high change environments. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe on your podcast app of choice and leave us a rating on Apple or Spotify.